Chapter 30 They rented a car in Los Angeles from one of the places that rents out cars that other people have thrown away. Getting it to go around corners is a bit of a problem, said the guy behind the sunglasses as he handed them the keys. Sometimes it's simpler just to get out and uh, find a car that's going in that direction. They stayed for one night in a hotel on Sunset Boulevard, which someone had told them they would enjoy being puzzled by. Everyone there is either English or odd or both. They've got a swimming pool where you can go and watch English rock stars reading language, truth and logic for the photographers. It was true. There was one, and that was exactly what he was doing. The garage attendant didn't think much of their car, but that was fine because they didn't either. Late in the evening, they drove through the Hollywood Hills along Mulholland Drive and stopped to look out first over the dazzling sea of floating light that is Los Angeles and later stopped to look across the dazzling sea of floating light that is the San Fernando Valley. They agreed that the sense of dazzle stopped immediately at the back of their eyes and didn't touch any other part of them and came away strangely unsatisfied by the spectacle. As dramatic seas of light went, it was fine, but light is meant to illuminate something, and having driven through what this particularly dramatic sea of light was illuminating, they didn't think much of it. They slept late and restlessly, and awoke at lunchtime when it was unbearably hot. They drove out along the freeway to Santa Monica for their first look at the Pacific Ocean, the ocean which Wonko the Sane spent all his days and a good deal of his nights looking at. Someone told me, said Fenchurch, that they once overheard two old ladies on this beach doing what we're doing, looking at the Pacific Ocean for the first time in their lives, and apparently after a long pause one of them said to the other, you know, it's not as big as I expected. Their mood gradually lifted as they walked along the beach in Malibu and watched all the millionaires in their chic shanty huts carefully keeping an eye on each other to check how rich they were each getting. Their mood lifted further as the sun began to move down the western half of the sky and by the time they were back in their rattling car and driving towards a sunset that no one of any sensibility would dream of building a city like Los Angeles in front of, they were suddenly feeling astonishingly and irrationally happy and didn't even mind that the terrible old car radio would only play two stations and those simultaneously. So what? They were both playing good rock and roll. I know that he will be able to help us, said Fenchurch determinedly. I know he will. What's his name again, that he likes to be called? Wonko the Sane. I know that he will be able to help us. Arthur wondered if he would, and hoped that he would, and hoped that what Fenchurch had lost could be found here, on this earth, whatever this earth might prove to be. He hoped as he had hoped continually and fervently since the time they had talked together on the banks of the Serpentine, that he would not be called upon to try and remember something that he had very firmly and deliberately buried in the furthest recesses of his memory, where he hoped it would cease to nag at him. In Santa Barbara, they stopped at a fish restaurant in what seemed to be a converted warehouse. Fenchurch had red mullet and said it was delicious. Arthur had a swordfish steak and said it made him angry. He grabbed a passing waitress by the arm and berated her. Why is this fish so bloody good? he demanded angrily. Please excuse my friend, said Fenchurch to the startled waitress. I think he's having a nice day at last. Chapter 31 if you took a couple of David Bowies and stuck one of the David Bowies on the top of the other David Bowie, then attached another David Bowie to the end of each of the arms of the upper of the first two David Bowies and wrapped the whole business up in a dirty beach robe, you would then have something which didn't exactly look like John Watson, but which those who knew him would find hauntingly familiar. He was tall and he gangled. When he sat in his deck chair gazing at the Pacific, not so much with any kind of wild surmise any longer as with a peaceful deep dejection, it was a little difficult to tell exactly where the deck chair ended and he began, and you would hesitate to put your hand on, say, his forearm in case the whole structure suddenly collapsed with a snap and took your thumb off. But his smile, when he turned it on you, was quite remarkable. It seemed to be composed of all the worst things that life can do to you, but which, when he briefly reassembled them in that particular order on his face, made you suddenly feel, oh, well, that's all right then. 
When he spoke, you were glad that he used the smile that made you feel, oh, well, that's all right then, pretty often. Oh, yes, he said. They come and see me. They sit right here. They sit right where you're sitting. He was talking of the angels with the golden beards and green wings and Dr. Scholl's sandals. They eat nachos, which they say they can't get where they come from. They do a lot of coke and are very wonderful about a whole range of things. Do they? said Arthur. Are they? So, uh, when is this, then? When do they come? He gazed out at the Pacific as well. There were little sandpipers running along the margin of the shore which seemed to have this problem. They needed to find their food in the sand, which a wave had just washed over, but they couldn't bear to get their feet wet. To deal with this problem, they ran with an odd kind of movement as if they had been constructed by somebody very clever in Switzerland. Fenchurch was sitting on the sand, idly drawing patterns in it with her fingers. "'Weekends, mostly,' said Wonko the Sane, "'on little scooters!' They are great machines, he smiled. I see, said Arthur. I see. A tiny cough from Fenchurch attracted his attention, and he looked round at her. She had scratched a little stick-figure drawing in the sand of the two of them in the clouds. For a moment he thought she was trying to get him excited. Then he realised that she was rebuking him. Who are we, she was saying, to say he's mad? His house was certainly peculiar, and since this was the first thing that Fenchurch and Arthur had encountered, it would help to know what it was like. What it was like was this. It was inside out. Actually, inside out, to the extent that they had to park on the carpet. All along what one would normally call the outer wall, which was decorated in a tasteful interior-designed pink, were bookshelves. Also, a couple of those odd three-legged tables with semicircular tops, which stand in such a way as to suggest that someone just dropped the wall straight through them, and pictures which were clearly designed to soothe. Where it got really odd was the roof. It folded back on itself like something that M.C. Escher, had he been given to hard nights on the town, which it is no part of this narrative's purpose to suggest was the case, though it is sometimes hard, looking at his pictures, particularly the one with all the awkward steps, not to wonder, might have dreamed up after having been on one. For the little chandeliers which should have been hanging inside were on the outside, pointing up. Confusing. The sign above the front door said, Come outside, and so, nervously, they had. Inside, of course, was where the outside was. Rough brickwork, nicely done pointing, guttering in good repair, a garden path, a couple of small trees, some rooms leading off. And the inner walls stretched down, folded curiously, and opened at the end as if, by an optical illusion which would have had M.C. Escher frowning and wondering how it was done, to enclose the Pacific Ocean itself. "'Hello,' said John Watson, Wonko the Sane. "'Good,' they thought to themselves." Hallo is something we can cope with. Hallo, they said, and all surprisingly were smiles. For quite a while he seemed curiously reluctant to talk about the dolphins, looking oddly distracted and saying, I forget, whenever they were mentioned, and had shown them quite proudly round the eccentricities of his house. It gives me pleasure, he said, in a curious kind of way, and does nobody any harm, he continued, that a competent optician couldn't correct. They liked him. He had an open, engaging quality and seemed able to mock himself before anybody else did. Your wife, said Arthur, looking around, mentioned some toothpicks. He said it with a hunted look, as if he was worried that she might suddenly leap out from behind the door and mention them again. Wonko the Sane laughed. It was a light, easy laugh and sounded like one he had used a lot before and was happy with. Ah, yes, he said. That's to do with the day I finally realized that the world had gone totally mad and built the asylum to put it in, poor thing, and hoped it would get better. This was the point at which Arthur began to feel a little nervous again. Here, said Wonko the Sane, we are outside the asylum. He pointed again at the rough brickwork, the pointing and the guttering. 
Go through that door, he pointed at the first door through which they had originally entered, and you go into the asylum. I've tried to decorate it nicely to keep the inmates happy, but there's very little one can do. I never go in there now myself. If ever I am tempted, which these days I rarely am, I simply look at the sign written over the door and I shy away. That one, said Fenchurch, pointing, rather puzzled, at a blue plaque with some instructions written on it. Yes, they are the words that finally turned me into the hermit I have now become. It was quite sudden. I saw them and I knew what I had to do. The sign said, Hold stick near centre of its length. Moisten pointed end in mouth. Insert in tooth space, blunt end next to gum. Use gentle in-out motion. It seemed to me, said Wonko the Sane, that any civilization that had so far lost its head as to need to include a set of detailed instructions for use in a packet of toothpicks was no longer a civilization in which I could live and stay sane. He gazed out at the Pacific again, as if daring it to rave and gibber at him, but it lay there calmly and played with the sandpipers. And in case it crossed your mind to wonder, as I can see how it possibly might, I am completely sane, which is why I call myself Wonko the Sane, just to reassure people on this point. Wonko is what my mother called me when I was a kid and clumsy and knocked things over, and sane is what I am. And how, he added with one of his smiles that made you feel, oh, well, that's all right then. I intend to remain. Shall we go under the beach and see what we have to talk about? They went out onto the beach, which was where he started talking about angels with golden beards and green wings and Dr. Scholl's sandals. About the dolphins, said Fenchurch gently, hopefully. I can show you the sandals, said Wonko the Sane. I wonder... Do you know, would you like me to show you, said Wonko the Sane, the sandals? I have them. I'll get them. They are made by the Dr. Scholl Company, and the angels say that they particularly suit the terrain they have to work in. They say they run a concession stand by the message. When I say I don't know what that means, they say, no, you don't, and laugh. Well, I'll get them anyway. As he walked back towards the inside, or the outside, depending on how you looked at it, Arthur and Fenchurch looked at each other in a wondering and slightly desperate sort of way. Then each shrugged and idly drew figures in the sand. How are the feet today? said Arthur quietly. Okay. It doesn't feel so odd in the sand or in the water. The water touches them perfectly. I just think this isn't our world. She shrugged. What do you think he meant, she said, by the message? I don't know, said Arthur, though the memory of a man called Prack who laughed at him continuously kept nagging at him. When Wonko returned, he was carrying something that stunned Arthur. Not the sandals. They were perfectly ordinary wooden-bottom sandals. I just thought you'd like to see, he said, what angels wear on their feet. Just out of curiosity. I'm not trying to prove anything, by the way. I'm a scientist, and I know what constitutes proof. But the reason I call myself by my childhood name is to remind myself that a scientist must also be absolutely like a child. If he sees a thing, he must say that he sees it, whether it was what he thought he was going to see or not. See first, think later then test, but always see first. Otherwise, you will only see what you are expecting. Most scientists forget that. I'll show you something to demonstrate that later. So, the other reason I call myself Wonko the Sane is so that people will think I am a fool. That allows me to say what I see when I see it. You can't possibly be a scientist if you mind people thinking that you're a fool. Anyway, I also thought you might like to see this. This was the thing that Arthur had been stunned to see him carrying, 
for it was a wonderful silver-grey glass fishbowl, seemingly identical to the one in Arthur's bedroom. Arthur had been trying for some thirty seconds now, without success, to say, Where did you get that? sharply and with a gasp in his voice. Finally, his time had come, but he missed it by a millisecond. Where did you get that? said Fenchurch, sharply and with a gasp in her voice. Arthur glanced at Fenchurch sharply and with a gasp in his voice, said, What? Have you seen one of these before? Yes, she said. I've got one, or at least did have. Russell nicked it to put his golf balls in. I don't know where it came from, just that I was angry with Russell for nicking it. Why, have you got one? Yes, it was... They both became aware that Wonko the Sane was glancing sharply backwards and forwards between them and trying to get a gasp in edgeways. You have one of these too? he said to both of them. Yes, they both said it. He looked long and calmly at each of them. Then he held up the bowl to catch the light of the Californian sun. The bowl seemed almost to sing with the sun, to chime with the intensity of its light, and cast darkly brilliant shadows around the sand and upon them. He turned it and turned it. They could see quite clearly in the fine tracery of its etchwork the words, So long, and thanks for all the fish. Do you know, asked Wonko quietly, what it is? They each shook their heads slowly and with wonder, almost hypnotised by the flashing of the lightning shadows in the grey glass. "'It is a farewell gift from the dolphins,' said Wonko in a low, quiet voice. "'The dolphins whom I loved and studied and swam with and fed with fish and even tried to learn their language.' a task which they seem to make impossibly difficult, considering the fact that I now realize they were perfectly capable of communicating in hours if they decided they wanted to. He shook his head with a slow, slow smile, and then looked again at Fenchurch, and then at Arthur. Have you, he said to Arthur, what have you done with yours? May I ask you that? Uh, I keep a fish in it, said Arthur, slightly embarrassed. I happened to have this fish I was wondering what to do with, and uh, there was this bowl, he tailed off. You've done nothing else, no? he said. If you had, you would know. He shook his head again. My wife kept wheat germ in ours, resumed Wonko, with some new tone in his voice. Until... Last night. What, said Arthur slowly and hushedly, happened last night? We ran out of wheat germ, said Wonko evenly. My wife, he added, has gone to get some more. He seemed lost with his own thoughts for a moment. And what happened then, said Fenchurch in the same breathless tone. I washed it said Wonko. I washed it very carefully, very, very carefully, removing every last speck of wheat germ. Then I dried it slowly with a lint-free cloth, slowly, carefully, turning it over and over. Then I held it to my ear. Have you... have you held one to your ear? They both shook their heads, again slowly, again dumbly. Perhaps, he said, you should. Chapter 32 The Deep Roar of the Ocean The break of waves on further shores than thought can find The silent thunders of the deep And from among it, voices calling, and yet not voices Humming trillings, wordlings, the half-articulated songs of thought Greetings, waves of greetings, sliding back down into the inarticulate. Words breaking together. A crash of sorrow on the shores of the earth. Waves of joy on... where? A world indescribably found, indescribably arrived at, indescribably wet. A song of water. A fugue of voices now, clamouring for explanations of a disaster unavertable, 
A world to be destroyed. A surge of helplessness. A spasm of despair. A dying fall. Again, the break of words. And then the fling of hope. The finding of a shadow earth in the implications of enfolded time. Submerged dimensions. The pull of parallels. The deep pull. The spin of will. The hurl and split of it. The flight. A new earth pulled into replacement. The dolphins gone. Then stunningly, a single voice, quite clear. This bowl was brought to you by the campaign to save the humans. We bid you farewell. And then the sound of long, heavy, perfectly grey bodies rolling away into an unknown, fathomless deep, quietly giggling. Chapter 33 that night they stayed outside the asylum and watched TV from inside it. This is what I wanted you to see, said Wonko the Sane when the news came around again. An old colleague of mine. He's over in your country running an investigation. Just watch. It was a press conference. I'm afraid I can't comment on the name Rainguard at this present time, and we are calling him an example of a spontaneous paracausal meteorological phenomenon. Can you tell us all what that means? I'm not altogether sure. Let's be straight here. If we find something we can't understand, we like to call it something you can't understand, or indeed pronounce. I mean, if we just let you go around calling him a rain god, then that suggests that you know something we don't, and I'm afraid we couldn't have that. No, first we have to call it something which says it's ours, not yours. Then we set about finding some way of proving it's not what you said it is, but something we say it is. And if it turns out that you're right, you'll still be wrong, because we will simply call him a, a supernormal. Not paranormal or supernatural, because you think you know what those mean now. No, a supernormal incremental precipitation inducer. We'll probably want to shove a quasi in there somewhere to protect ourselves. Rain God. <laughs> uh, never heard so much nonsense in my life. Admittedly, you wouldn't catch me going on holiday with him. Thanks, that'll be all for now, other than to say hi to Wongo if he's watching. Chapter 34 On the way home, there was a woman sitting next to them on the plane who was looking at them rather oddly. They talked quietly to themselves. I still have to know, said Fenchurch, and I strongly feel that you know something that you're not telling me. Arthur sighed and took out a piece of paper. Do you have a pencil, he said. She dug around and found one. What are you doing, sweetheart, she said, after he had spent twenty minutes frowning, chewing the pencil, scribbling on the paper, crossing things out, scribbling again, chewing the pencil again, and grunting irritably to himself, trying to remember an address someone once gave me. Your life would be an awful lot simpler, she said, if you bought yourself an address book. Finally, he passed the paper to her. You look after it, he said. She looked at it. Among all the scratchings and crossings out were the words Quenchilus Quasgar Mountains, Seville Biopstri, Planet of Prelium Tarn, Sun Zars, Galactic Sector QQ7 Active J Gamma. And what's there? Apparently, said Arthur, it's God's final message to his creation. That sounds a bit more like it, said Fenchurch. How do we get there? You really... Yes, said Fenchurch firmly. I really want to know. Arthur looked out of the scratchy little perspex window at the open sky outside. Excuse me, said the woman who had been looking at them rather oddly, suddenly. I hope you don't think I'm rude. I get so bored on these long flights. It's nice to talk to somebody. My name's Enid Kappelson. I'm from Boston. Tell me, do you fly a lot? Chapter 35 They went to Arthur's house in the West Country, shoved a couple of towels and stuff in a bag, and then sat down to do what every galactic hitchhiker ends up spending most of his time doing. They waited for a flying saucer to come by. Friend of mine did this for 15 years, said Arthur one night as they sat forlornly watching the sky. Who was that? Called Ford Prefect. He caught himself doing something he had never really expected to do again. He wondered where Ford Prefect was. 
By an extraordinary coincidence, the following day there were two reports in the paper, one concerning the most astonishing incident with a flying saucer and the other about a series of unseemly riots in pubs. Ford Prefect turned up the day after that looking hungover and complaining that Arthur never answered the phone. In fact, he looked extremely ill, not merely as if he'd been pulled through a hedge backwards, but as if the hedge was being simultaneously pulled backwards through a combine harvester. He staggered into Arthur's sitting room, waving aside all offers of support, which was an error, because the effort of waving caused him to lose his balance altogether, and Arthur had eventually to drag him to the sofa. "'Thank you,' said Ford. "'Thank you very much. "'Have you?' he said, and fell asleep for three hours. "'The faintest idea,' he continued suddenly, when he revived, "'how hard it is to tap into the British phone system from the Pleiades. "'I can see that you haven't, so I'll tell you,' he said, "'over the very large mug of black coffee that you are about to make me.' He followed Arthur wobbly into the kitchen. Stupid operators keep asking you where you're calling from and you try and tell them Letchworth and they say you couldn't be if you're coming in on that circuit. What are you doing? Making you some black coffee. Oh. Ford seemed oddly disappointed. He looked about the place forlornly. What's this? He said. Rice Krispies. And this? Paprika. I see said Ford solemnly, and put the two items back down, one on top of the other. But that didn't seem to balance properly, so he put the other on top of the one, and that seemed to work. A little space lagged, he said. What was I saying? About not phoning from Letchworth. I wasn't. I explained this to the lady. Bugger Letchworth, I said, if that's your attitude, I am in fact calling from a sales scout ship of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation, currently on the sub-light speed leg of a journey between the stars known to your world, though not necessarily to you, dear lady, I said, dear lady, explained Ford Prefect, because I didn't want her to be offended by my implication that she was an ignorant cretin. Tactful, said Arthur. Exactly, said Ford. Tactful. He frowned. Space lag, he said, is very bad for sub-clauses. You'll have to assist me again, he continued, by reminding me what I was talking about. Between the stars, said Arthur, known to your world, though not necessarily to you, dear lady, as Pleiades Epsilon and Pleiades Zeta, concluded Ford triumphantly. This conversation, Lark, is quite a gas, isn't it? Have some coffee. Thank you, no. And the reason, I said, why I am bothering you with it, rather than just dialing direct as I could, because we have some pretty sophisticated telecommunications equipment out here in the Pleiades, I can tell you, is that the penny-pinching son-of-a-star-beast piloting this son-of-a-star-beast starship insists that I call collect. Can you believe that? And could she? I don't know. She had hung up, said Ford, by this time. So, what do you suppose, he asked fiercely, I did next? "'I've no idea, Ford,' said Arthur. "'Pity,' said Ford. "'I was hoping you could remind me. "'I really hate those guys, you know. "'They really are the creeps of the cosmos "'buzzing around the celestial infinite "'with their junky little machines "'that never work properly "'or, when they do, perform functions "'that no sane man would require of them "'and,' he added savagely, "'go beep to tell you when they've done it.' "'This was perfectly true.' and a very respectable view widely held by right-thinking people, who are largely recognisable as being right-thinking people by the mere fact that they hold this view. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in a moment of reasoned lucidity which is almost unique among its current tally of 5,973,509 pages, says of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation products, that it is very easy to be blinded to the essential uselessness of them by the sense of achievement you get from getting them to work at all. In other words, and this is the rock-solid principle on which the whole of the corporation's galaxy-wide success is founded, their fundamental design flaws are completely hidden by their superficial design flaws. And this guy, ranted Ford, was on a drive to sell more of them. His five-year mission to seek out and explore strange new worlds and sell advanced music substitute systems to their restaurants, elevators and wine bars, or if they didn't have restaurants, elevators and wine bars yet, to artificially accelerate their civilization growth until they bloody well did have. Where's that coffee? I threw it away. Make some more. I have now remembered what I did next. I saved civilization as we know it. I knew it was something like that. 
he stumbled determinedly back into the sitting room where he seemed to carry on talking to himself, tripping over the furniture and making beep-beep noises. A couple of minutes later, wearing his very placid face, Arthur followed him. Ford looked stunned. Where have you been? he demanded. Making some coffee, said Arthur, still wearing his very placid face. He had long ago realised that the only way of being in Ford's company successfully was to keep a large stock of very placid faces and wear them at all times. You missed the best bit, raged Ford. You missed the bit where I jumped the guy. Now, he said, I shall have to jump him all over again. He hurled himself recklessly at a chair and broke it. It was better, he said sullenly last time and waved vaguely in the direction of another broken chair which he had already got trussed up on the dining table. I see, said Arthur, casting a placid eye over the trussed up wreckage. And, uh, what are all the ice cubes for? What? screamed Ford. What? You missed that bit too? That's the suspended animation facility. I put the guy in the suspended animation facility. Well, I had to, didn't I? So it would seem, said Arthur in his placid voice. Don't touch that! yelled Ford. Arthur, who was about to replace the phone, which was for some mysterious reason lying on the table off the hook, paused placidly. OK, said Ford, calming down. Listen to it. Arthur put the phone to his ear. It's the speaking clock, he said. Beep, 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 said Ford is exactly what is being heard all over that guy's ship while he sleeps in the ice going slowly round a little-known moon of Sassafras Magna, the London speaking clock. I see, said Arthur again, and decided that now was the time to ask the big one. Why, he said placidly. With a bit of luck, said Ford, the phone bill will bankrupt the buggers. He threw himself, sweating, onto the sofa. Anyway, he said, dramatic arrival, don't you think? Chapter 36 The flying saucer in which Ford Prefect had stowed away had stunned the world. Finally, there was no doubt, no possibility of mistake, no hallucinations, no mysterious CIA agents found floating in reservoirs. This time it was real. It was definite. It was quite definitely definite. It had come down with a wonderful disregard for anything beneath it and crushed a large area of some of the most expensive real estate in the world, including much of Harrods. The thing was massive, nearly a mile across, some said, dull silver in colour, pitted, scorched and disfigured with the scars of unnumbered vicious space battles fought with savage forces by the light of suns unknown to man. A hatchway opened, crashed down through the Harrods food halls, demolished Harvey Nichols, and with a final grinding scream of tortured architecture, toppled the Sheraton Park Tower. After a long, heart-stopping moment of internal crashes and grumbles of rending machinery, there marched from it down the ramp an immense silver robot, a hundred feet tall. It held up a hand. I come in peace, it said, adding after a long moment of further grinding, take me to your lizard. Ford Prefect, of course, had an explanation for this as he sat with Arthur and watched the non-stop frenetic news reports on the television, none of which had anything to say other than to record that the thing had done this amount of damage, which was valued at that amount of billions of pounds, and had killed this totally other number of people, and then say it again, because the robot was doing nothing more than standing there, swaying very slightly, and emitting short, incomprehensible error messages. It comes from a very ancient democracy, you see. You mean it comes from a world of lizards? No, said Ford, who by this time was a little more rational and coherent than he had been, having finally had the coffee forced down him. Nothing so simple, nothing anything like so straightforward. On its world, the people are people, the leaders are lizards, the people hate the lizards, and the lizards rule the people. Odd, said Arthur, I thought you said it was a democracy. I did, said Ford, it is. So, said Arthur, hoping he wasn't sounding ridiculously obtuse, why don't people get rid of the lizards? 
It honestly doesn't occur to them, said Ford. They've all got the vote, so they all pretty much assume that the government they voted in more or less approximates to the government they want. You mean they actually vote for the lizards? Oh, yes, said Ford with a shrug, of course. But, said Arthur, going for the big one again, why? Because if they didn't vote for a lizard, said Ford, the wrong lizard might get in. Got any gin? What? I said, said Ford, with an increasing air of urgency creeping into his voice, have you got any gin? I'll look. Tell me about the lizards. Ford shrugged again. Some people say that the lizards are the best thing that ever happened to them, he said. They're completely wrong, of course, completely and utterly wrong, but someone's got to say it. But that's terrible, said Arthur. Listen, bud, said Ford, if I had one Altarian dollar for every time I heard one bit of the universe look at another bit of the universe and say, that's terrible, I wouldn't be sitting here like a lemon looking for a gin. But I haven't and I am. Anyway, what are you looking so placid and moon-eyed for? Are you in love? Arthur said yes, he was, and said it placidly. With someone who knows where the gin bottle is? Do I get to meet her? He did, because Fenchurch came in at that moment with a pile of newspapers she'd been into the village to buy. She stopped in astonishment at the wreckage on the table and the wreckage from Beetlejuice on the sofa. "'Where's the gin?' said Ford to Fenchurch, and to Arthur. "'What happened to Trillian, by the way?' "'Er, uh, this is Fenchurch,' said Arthur, awkwardly. "'There was nothing with Trillian. You must have seen her last.' "'Oh, yeah,' said Ford. "'She went off with Zaphod somewhere.' They had some kids or something. At least, he added, I think that's what they were. Zaphod's calmed down a lot, you know. Really? said Arthur, clustering hurriedly round Fenchurch to relieve her of the shopping. Yeah, said Ford. At least one of his heads is now saner than an emu on acid. Arthur, who is this? said Fenchurch. Ford Prefect, said Arthur. I may have mentioned him in passing. Chapter 37 for a total of three days and nights, the giant silver robot stood in stunned amazement straddling the remains of Knightsbridge, swaying slightly and trying to work out a number of things. Government deputations came to see it. Ranting journalists by the truckload asked each other questions on the air about what they thought of it. Flights of fighter bombers tried pathetically to attack it, but no lizards appeared. It scanned the horizon slowly. At night, it was at its most spectacular, floodlit by the teams of television crews who covered it continuously as it continuously did nothing. It thought and thought and eventually reached a conclusion. It would have to send out its service robots. It should have thought of that before, but it was having a number of problems. The tiny flying robots came screeching out of the hatchway one afternoon in a terrifying cloud of metal. They roamed the surrounding terrain, frantically attacking some things and defending others. One of them at last found a pet shop with some lizards, but it instantly defended the pet shop for democracy so savagely that little in the area survived. A turning point came when a crack team of flying screechers discovered the zoo in Regent's Park, and most particularly the reptile house. Learning a little caution from their previous mistakes in the pet shop, the flying drills and fret saws brought some of the larger and fatter iguanas to the giant silver robot, who tried to conduct high-level talks with them. Eventually, the robot announced to the world that despite the full, frank and wide-ranging exchange of views, the high-level talks had broken down, the lizards had been retired, and that it, the robot, would take a short holiday somewhere, and for some reason selected Bournemouth. Ford Prefect, watching it on TV, nodded, laughed and had another beer. Immediate preparations were made for its departure. The flying toolkits screeched and sawed and drilled and fried things with light throughout that day and all through the night time, and in the morning, stunningly, a giant mobile gantry started to roll westwards on several roads simultaneously, with the robots standing on it, supported within the gantry. Westward it crawled, like a strange carnival, buzzed around by its servants and helicopters and news coaches, scything through the land until, at last, it came to Bournemouth, where the robot slowly freed itself of its transport system's embraces and went and lay for ten days on the beach. It was, of course, by far the most exciting thing that had ever happened to Bournemouth. Crowds gathered daily along the perimeter, 
which was staked out and guarded as the robot's recreation area, and tried to see what it was doing. It was doing nothing. It was lying on the beach. It was lying a little awkwardly on its face. It was a journalist from a local paper who, late one night, managed to do what no one else in the world had so far managed, which was to strike up a brief, intelligible conversation with one of the service robots guarding the perimeter. It was an extraordinary breakthrough. I think there's a story in it, confided the journalist over a cigarette shared through the steel link fence, but it needs a good local angle. I've got a little list of questions here, he went on, rummaging awkwardly in an inner pocket. Perhaps you could get him, it, whatever you call him, to run through them quickly. The little flying ratchet screwdriver said it would see what it could do and screeched off. A reply was never forthcoming. Curiously, however, the questions on the piece of paper more or less exactly matched the questions that were going through the massive battle-scarred industrial quality circuits of the robot's mind. They were these. How do you feel about being a robot? How does it feel to be from outer space? And how do you like Bournemouth? Early the following day, things started to be packed up and within a few days it became apparent that the robot was preparing to leave for good. The point is, said Fenchurch to Ford, can you get us on board? Ford looked wildly at his watch. I have some serious unfinished business to attend to, he exclaimed. Chapter 38 Crowds thronged as close as they could to the giant silver craft, which wasn't very. The immediate perimeter was fenced off and patrolled by the tiny flying service robots. Staked out around that was the army, who had been completely unable to breach that inner perimeter, but were damned if anybody was going to breach them. They, in turn, were surrounded by a cordon of police though whether they were there to protect the public from the army or the army from the public, or to guarantee the giant ship's diplomatic immunity and prevent it getting parking tickets, was entirely unclear and the subject of much debate. The inner perimeter fence was now being dismantled. The army stirred uncomfortably, uncertain of how to react to the fact that the reason for their being there seemed as if it was simply going to get up and go. The giant robot had lurched back aboard the ship at lunchtime, and now it was five o'clock in the afternoon, and no further sign had been seen of it. Much had been heard, more grindings and rumblings from deep within the craft, the music of a million hideous malfunctions, but the sense of tense expectation among the crowd was born of the fact that they tensely expected to be disappointed. This wonderful, extraordinary thing had come into their lives, and now it was simply going to go without them. Two people were particularly aware of this sensation. Arthur and Fenchurch scanned the crowd anxiously, unable to find Ford Prefect in it anywhere, or any sign that he had the slightest intention of being there. "'How reliable is he?' asked Fenchurch in a sinking voice. "'How reliable?' said Arthur. He gave a hollow laugh. "'How shallow is the ocean?' he said. "'How cold is the sun?' The last parts of the robot's gantry transport were being carried on board, and the few remaining sections of the perimeter fence were now stacked at the bottom of the ramp, waiting to follow them. The soldiers on guard round the ramp bristled meaningfully. Orders were barked back and forth, hurried conferences were held, but nothing, of course, could be done about any of it. Hopelessly, and with no clear plan now, Arthur and Fenchurch pushed forward through the crowd, but since the whole crowd was also trying to push forward through the crowd, this got them nowhere. And within a few minutes more, nothing remained outside the ship. Every last link of the fence was aboard. A couple of flying fretsaws and a spirit level seemed to do one last check around the site and then screamed in through the giant hatchway themselves. A few seconds passed. The sounds of mechanical disarray from within changed in intensity, and slowly, heavily, the huge steel ramp began to lift itself back out of the Harrods' food halls. The sound that accompanied it was the sound of thousands of tense, excited people being completely ignored. Hold it! A megaphone barked from a taxi which screeched to a halt on the edge of the milling crowd. There has been, barked the megaphone, a major scientific break-in. 
through, break through, it corrected itself. The door flew open and a small man from somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice leapt out wearing a white coat. Hold it, he shouted again, and this time brandished a short squat black rod with lights on it. The lights winked briefly, the ramp paused in its ascent, and then in obedience to the signals from the thumb, which half the electronic engineers in the galaxy are constantly trying to find fresh ways of jamming, while the other half are constantly trying to find fresh ways of jamming the jamming signals, slowly ground its way downwards again. Ford Prefect grabbed his megaphone from out of the taxi and started bawling at the crowd through it. Make way, he shouted. Make way, please. This is a major scientific breakthrough. You and you, get the equipment from the taxi. Completely at random, he pointed at Arthur and Fenchurch, who wrestled their way back out of the crowd and clustered urgently round the taxi. All right, I want you to clear a passage, please, for some important pieces of scientific equipment, boomed Ford. Just everybody keep calm. It's all under control. There's nothing to see. It is merely a major scientific breakthrough. Keep calm now. Important scientific equipment. Clear the way. Hungry for new excitement, delighted at this sudden reprieve from disappointment, the crowd enthusiastically fell back and started to open up. Arthur was a little surprised to see what was printed on the boxes of important scientific equipment in the back of the taxi. "'Hang your coat over them,' he muttered to Fenchurch as he heaved them out to her. Hurriedly, he manoeuvred out the large supermarket trolley that was also jammed against the back seat. It clattered to the ground, and together they loaded the boxes into it. "'Clear a path, please!' shouted Ford again. "'Everything's under proper scientific control!' He said you'd pay said the taxi driver to Arthur, who dug out some notes and paid him. There was the distant sound of police sirens. "'Move along there!' shouted Ford, "'and no one will get hurt!' The crowd surged and closed behind them again, as frantically they pushed and hauled the rattling supermarket trolley through the rubble towards the ramp. "'It's all right!' Ford continued to bellow. "'There's nothing to see. It's all over. None of this is actually happening!' "'Clear the way, please!' boomed a police megaphone from the back of the crowd. There's been a break-in! Clear the way! Breakthrough! yelled Ford in competition. A scientific breakthrough! This is the police! Clear the way! Scientific equipment! Clear the way! Police! Let us through! Walkman! yelled Ford, and pulled half a dozen miniature tape players from his pockets and tossed them into the crowd. The resulting seconds of utter confusion allowed them to get the supermarket trolley to the edge of the ramp and to haul it up onto the lip of it. Hold tight, muttered Ford, and released a button on his electronic thumb. Beneath them, the huge ramp juddered and began slowly to heave its way upwards. OK, kids, he said as the milling crowd dropped away beneath them and they started to lurch their way along the tilting ramp into the bowels of the ship. Looks like we're on our way. Chapter 39 Arthur Dent was irritated to be continually wakened by the sound of gunfire. Being careful not to wake Fenchurch, who was still managing to sleep fitfully, he slid his way out of the maintenance hatchway which they had fashioned into a kind of bunk for themselves, slung himself down the access ladder and prowled the corridors moodily. They were claustrophobic and ill-lit. The lighting circuits buzzed annoyingly. That wasn't it, though. He paused and leaned backwards as a flying power drill flew past him down the dim corridor with a nasty screech, occasionally clanging against the walls like a confused bee as it did so. That wasn't it, either. He clambered through a bulkhead door and found himself in a larger corridor. Acrid smoke was drifting up from one end, so he walked towards the other. He came to an observation monitor let into the wall behind a plate of toughened but still badly scratched perspex. "'Would you turn it down, please?' he said to Ford Prefect, who was crouching in front of it in the middle of a pile of bits of video equipment he'd taken from a shop window in Tottenham Court Road, having first hurled a small brick through it and also a heap of empty beer cans. "'Shh!' hissed Ford, and peered with manic concentration at the screen. He was watching the Magnificent Seven. Just a bit, said Arthur. No, shouted Ford. We're just getting to the good bit. Listen, I finally got it all sorted out, voltage levels, line conversion, everything, and this is the good bit. With a sigh and a headache, Arthur sat down beside him and watched the good bit. He listened to Ford's whoops and yells and yee as placidly as he could. 
Ford, he said eventually when it was all over and Ford was hunting through a stack of cassettes for the tape of Casablanca, how come if... This is the big one, said Ford. This is the one I came back for. Do you realise I never saw it all through? Always I missed the end. I saw half of it again the night before the Vogons came. When they blew the place up, I thought I'd never get to see it. Hey, what happened with all that, anyway? Just life, said Arthur, and plucked a beer from a six-pack. Oh, that again, said Ford. I thought it might be something like that. I prefer this stuff, he said, as Rick's bar flickered onto the screen. How come if what? What? You started to say, how come if... How come if you're so rude about the Earth that you... Oh, never mind, let's just watch the movie. Exactly, said Ford. Chapter 40 There remains little still to tell. Beyond what used to be known as the limitless light fields of Flanax, until the grey binding fiefdoms of Saxaquine were discovered lying behind them, lie the grey binding fiefdoms of Saxaquine. Within the grey binding fiefdoms of Saxaquine lies the star named Zars, around which orbits the planet Preliumtarn, on which is the land of Sevorbiapstri. And it was to the land of Sevorbiapstri that Arthur and Fenchurch came at last a little tired by the journey. And in the land of Sevorbiapstri, they came to the great red plain of Raz, which was bounded on the south side by the Quenchilus Quasgar Mountains, on the further side of which, according to the dying words of Prack, they would find in thirty-foot-high letters of fire God's final message to his creation. According to Prack, if Arthur's memory served him right, the place was guarded by the logistic Vantrachel of Lob, and so, after a manner, it proved to be. He was a little man in a strange hat, and he sold them a ticket. Keep to the left, please, he said. Keep to the left, and hurried on past them on a little scooter. They realised they were not the first to pass that way, for the path that led around the left of the Great Plain was well-worn and dotted with booths. At one, they bought a box of fudge which had been baked in an oven in a cave in the mountain, which was heated by the fire of the letters that formed God's final message to his creation. At another, they bought some postcards. The letters had been blurred with an airbrush, so as not to spoil the big surprise, it said on the reverse. Do you know what the message is? they asked the wizened little lady in the booth. Oh, yes, she piped cheerily. Oh, yes, she waved them on. Every twenty miles or so there was a little stone hut with showers and sanitary facilities, but the going was tough, and the high sun baked down on the great red plain, and the great red plain rippled in the heat. "'Is it possible,' asked Arthur at one of the larger booths, "'to rent one of those little scooters, like the one logistic Ventura what's-it had?' "'The scooters,' said the little lady who was serving at the ice-cream bar, "'are not for the devout.' "'Oh, well, that's easy, then,' said Fenchurch. "'We're not particularly devout. We're just interested.' "'Then you must turn back now,' said the little lady severely. And when they demurred, sold them a couple of final message sun hats and a photograph of themselves with their arms tight around each other on the great red plain of Raz. They drank a couple of sodas in the shade of the booth and then trudged out into the sun again. "'We're running out of barrier cream.' said Fenchurch after a few more miles. We can go to the next booth, or we can return to the previous one, which is nearer, but means we have to retrace our steps again. They stared ahead at the distant black speck winking in the heat haze. They looked behind themselves. They elected to go on. They then discovered that they were not only not the first to make this journey, but that they were not the only ones making it now. Somewhere ahead of them, an awkward low shape was heaving itself wretchedly along the ground, stumbling painfully slowly, half limping, half crawling. It was moving so slowly that before too long, they caught the creature up and could see that it was made of worn, scarred and twisted metal. It groaned at them as they approached it, collapsing in the hot, dry dust. So much time, it groaned. Oh, so much time. And pain as well, so much of that. And so much time to suffer it in, too. One or the other on its own I could probably manage. It's the two together that really get me down. Oh, hello, you again. 
Marvin,' said Arthur sharply, crouching down beside it. "'Is that you?' "'You were always one,' groaned the aged husk of the robot, "'for the super-intelligent question, weren't you?' "'What is it?' whispered Fenchurch in alarm, "'crouching behind Arthur and grasping onto his arm. "'He's sort of an old friend,' said Arthur. "'I... friend,' croaked the robot pathetically. "'The word died away in a kind of crackle "'and flakes of rust fell out of his mouth. "'You'll have to excuse me while I try and remember what the word means.' My memory banks are not what they were, you know, and any word which falls into disuse for a few zillion years has to get shifted down into auxiliary memory backup. Ah, here it comes. The robot's battered head snapped up a bit as if in thought. Hmm, he said. What a curious concept. He thought a little longer. No, he said at last. Don't think I ever came across one of those. Sorry, can't help you there. He scraped a knee along pathetically in the dust and then tried to twist himself up onto his misshapen elbows. "'Is there any last service you would like me to perform for you, perhaps?' he asked in a kind of hollow rattle. "'A piece of paper that perhaps you would like me to pick up for you? Or maybe you would like me,' he continued, "'to open a door?' His head scratched round in its rusty neck bearings and seemed to scan the distant horizon. Don't seem to be any doors around at present, he said, but I'm sure that if we waited long enough, someone would build one. And then, he said slowly, twisting his head around to see Arthur again, I could open it for you. I'm quite used to waiting, you know. Arthur, hissed Fenchurch in his ear sharply, you never told me of this. What have you done to this poor creature? Nothing, insisted Arthur sadly. He's always like this. Ha! <laughs> "'snapped Marvin. "'Ha!' he repeated. "'What do you know of always? "'You say always to me, "'who, because of the silly little errands "'you organic life-forms keep on sending me through time on, "'am now thirty-seven times older than the universe itself. "'Pick your words with a little more care,' he coughed. "'And tact. "'He rasped his way through a coughing fit and resumed. "'Leave me,' he said. Go on ahead. Leave me to struggle painfully on my way. My time at last is nearly come. My race is nearly run. I fully expect, he said, feebly waving them on with a broken finger, to come in last. It would be fitting. Here I am, brain the size of... Shut up, said Arthur. Between them they picked him up despite his feeble protests and insults. The metal was so hot it nearly blistered their fingers, but he weighed surprisingly little and hung limply between their arms. They carried him with them along the path that ran along the left of the great red plain of Raz towards the encircling mountains of Quenchilus Quasgar. Arthur attempted to explain to Fenchurch, but was too often interrupted by Marvin's dolorous cybernetic ravings. They tried to see if they could get him some spare parts at one of the booths and some soothing oil, but Marvin would have none of it. I'm all spare parts, he droned. Let me be, he groaned. Every part of me, he moaned, has been replaced at least fifty times, except he seemed almost imperceptibly to brighten for a moment. His head bobbed between them with the effort of memory. Do you remember... The first time you ever met me, he said at last to Arthur, I had been given the intellect-stretching task of taking you up to the bridge. I mentioned to you that I had this terrible pain in all the diodes down my left side, that I had asked for them to be replaced, but they never were. He left a longish pause before he continued. They carried him on between them, under the baking sun that hardly ever seemed to move, let alone set. See if you can guess, said Marvin, when he judged that the pause had become embarrassing enough, which parts of me were never replaced. Go on, see if you can guess. Ouch, he added. Ouch, 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 ouch. At last they reached the last of the little booths set down Marvin between them and rested in the shade. Fenchurch bought some cufflinks for Russell, 
cufflinks that had set in them little polished pebbles which had been picked up from the quenchless Quasgar Mountains directly underneath the letters of fire in which was written God's final message to his creation. Arthur flipped through a little rack of devotional tracts on the counter, little meditations on the meaning of the message. Ready, he said to Fenchurch, who nodded. They heaved up Marvin between them. They rounded the foot of the quenchless Quasgar Mountains, and there was the message written in blazing letters along the crest of the mountain. There was a little observation vantage point with a rail built along the top of a large rock facing it, from which you could get a good view. It had a little pay telescope for looking at the letters in detail, but no one would ever use it because the letters burned with the divine brilliance of the heavens and would, if seen through a telescope, have severely damaged the retina and optic nerve. They gazed at God's final message in wonderment, and were slowly and ineffably filled with a great sense of peace and of final and complete understanding. Fenchurch sighed. Yes, she said. That was it. They had been staring at it for fully ten minutes before they became aware that Marvin, hanging between their shoulders, was in difficulties. The robot could no longer lift his head, had not read the message. They lifted his head, but he complained that his vision circuits had almost gone. They found a coin and helped him to the telescope. He complained and insulted them, but they helped him look at each individual letter in turn. The first letter was a W, the second an E, then there was a gap, an A followed, then a P, an O, and an L. Marvin paused for a rest. After a few moments, they resumed and let him see the O, the G, the I, the S, and the E. The next two words were for and the. The last one was a long one, and Marvin needed another rest before he could tackle it. It started with I, then N, then a C, next came an O and an N, followed by a V, an E, another N, and an I. After a final pause, Marvin gathered his strength for the last stretch. He read the E, the N, the C, and at last the final E, and staggered back into their arms. I think, he murmured at last, from deep within his corroding, rattling thorax, I feel good about it. The lights went out in his eyes for absolutely the very last time ever. Luckily, there was a stall nearby where you could rent scooters from guys with green wings. Epilogue one of the greatest benefactors of all life-kind was a man who couldn't keep his mind on the job in hand. Brilliant? Certainly. One of the foremost genetic engineers of his or any other generation, including a number he had designed himself. Without a doubt. The problem was that he was far too interested in things which he shouldn't be interested in, at least, as people would tell him, not now. He was also, partly because of this, of a rather irritable disposition. So when his world was threatened by terrible invaders from a distant star, who were still a fair way off but travelling fast, he, Blart Versenwald III, his name was Blart Versenwald III, which is not strictly relevant, but quite interesting because, never mind, that was his name and we can talk about why it's interesting later was sent into guarded seclusion by the masters of his race with instructions to design a breed of fanatical super-warriors to resist and vanquish the feared invaders, do it quickly, and, they told him, concentrate. So, he sat by a window and looked out at a summer lawn and designed and designed and designed, but inevitably got a little distracted by things, and by the time the invaders were practically in orbit round them, had come up with a remarkable new breed of superfly that could, unaided, figure out how to fly through the open half of a half-open window, and also an off-switch for children. Celebrations of these remarkable achievements seemed doomed to be short-lived, because disaster was imminent as the alien ships were landing. But astoundingly, 
the fearsome invaders who, like most warlike races, were only on the rampage because they couldn't cope with things at home, were stunned by Versenwald's extraordinary breakthroughs, joined in the celebrations and were instantly prevailed upon to sign a wide-ranging series of trading agreements and set up a programme of cultural exchanges. And, in an astonishing reversal of normal practice in the conduct of such matters, everybody concerned lived happily ever after. There was a point to this story, but it has temporarily escaped the chronicler's mind. Thank mm-hmm. you.